0: I'd like the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We're going to begin looking at this section of Scripture a little more deeply this morning. We started last week. We're going to spend a few weeks here. I want to say that I really believe that what Paul is teaching, the Apostle Paul, is teaching in this chapter is one of the most important lessons for the church to learn. Jesus said to His disciples in that last conversation He had with them before He was arrested, that long discourse that's recorded in John chapter 13 or so through 17, He said, "...this is the way that all men will know that you're My disciples." The way that you love each other. Love is the defining outward characteristic of the Christian. And love for one another in the body of Christ is the defining characteristic of the church. It's not how smart we are. It's not how snazzy our services are. It's not how how we dress. It's not any of those things that are going to really set us apart. But the one thing that cannot be duplicated consistently to the depth that God makes possible is love for one another in the body of Christ. And Jesus said, this is the thing that will let everyone know that you're, you're my follower, the way you love each other. And then when he came to that moment of prayer in John chapter 17, if you look closely at that prayer, the number one passion in the heart of Christ as he prayed for his disciples was that they might be one, that they might be in unity, that unity would define their relationships. Love and unity define the church when it's at its best. And through the years, the church has been divided and fractured and segmented into denominationalism and all other kinds of divisions for 2,000 years, fussing and feuding and fighting over differences of opinion and different ways of expressing their faith that go to the heart of what Paul is trying to correct as he gives us Romans 14 and the first half of 15. So if we get this, if we understand it, we will be more like the true church of Jesus Christ than any other way we could possibly be. Because the the essence of the chapter is unity in the body of Christ by eliminating from our lives judgment and condemnation of one another over opinionated matters. Some of those opinions are held dearly. And the problem is that many of us often confuse our opinions with what is true biblical morality. We get them mixed up and And the Bible says this, and we think if we add three or four steps removed, we'll be safer. And so we begin adding stuff and interpolating things and magnifying things to the point that it's no longer recognizable as Scripture, but we think it's good common sense, so we're going to do it. And in the process, we alienate one another who differ, and exactly how to do that. Now, in this section, Paul contrasts two kinds of believers. He contrasts those who are weak in faith with those who are strong in faith. And last week, I touched very briefly on the characteristics of those who are weak in faith. It has raised a lot of questions. The discussion around this topic has been very interesting. And some people have tried to generalize it as to say, well, I'm weak in some areas and I'm strong in some areas. Or I, I'm weak in certain temptations and I'm, I'm strong in other temptations. I, I don't have such a difficulty with lust, some may say, but I, I struggle with my temper. Another person may say, I have an anger problem, uh, you know, or I don't have an anger problem. I've kind of gotten over that, but I drink too much. Or someone, you know, else uh, has a different issue, and they say I'm kind of strong here and I'm kind of weak there. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about temptation. We're not talking about your particular weaknesses of character, and we all have them. Uh, Any good writer knows that if they're going to make a believable character, they've got to have some character flaws or some, some character issues. Believable people have weaknesses. We all have them in some way or another. But, in the Scripture, there are certain kind of watersheds where the Bible describes an experience before and after that is a change in our life. And in this case, Paul tells us with respect to our faith on a daily basis, trusting God for His work in our lives to make us into the character and image of Jesus Christ over time. Some are weak in faith. They have trouble believing that. And others are strong in faith. We see that in 14.1 and 15.1. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, It says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. So, there's one category of Christians, those who are weak in faith in this regard. And then in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says this, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So you see... That there are the weak and there are the strong in faith, in the context of this section, and Paul considers himself to be one of the strong ones. Now, we who are strong, you see, we who are strong, ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak and not just please ourselves. So he holds forth for us the possibility that we can join him on the side of being strong in faith. We don't have to remain weak in faith. And in fact, the goal, even though the focus of the passage is on unity, the hope is that eventually all believers will come to be strong in faith. Now when we talk about faith this morning, and that's really where I want to rest for the the rest of my time. What is faith that he's talking about in this passage? And what characterizes the weak And what characterizes the strong in this regard? When we talk about faith, what is faith? You know, faith is something that every one of us exercises every day. I want to argue for a moment from the general to the specific, okay? In general, every one of us exercises faith every day of our lives. You exercised faith when you walked into this room. The reason I know that is because every one of you are sitting down. How is that faith? Well, faith is acting on something, a promise that has been made or implied or a commitment that someone else has made. And you take action based on that faith. You believe that what has been promised is true. Now, you didn't think about this. But when you walked in, you sat in a chair, and you're sitting there now, and you're exercising faith, or at least you did when you sat down. And the faith that you exercised was that the chair manufacturer made a chair that would hold you up, and implied in the fact that that blue thing throughout this room that has four legs and a back and a seat, the implication is, you can sit on me and I will not fail you. You didn't know that for a fact, particularly if you're here today for the first time. You didn't know that for a fact until you sat in it. But you didn't even think about it. You just walked in and sat down because you assumed that chairs are designed to hold you up. That's an exercise of faith. That may seem kind of simplistic to you. But we exercise faith every day when we believe the promises, the warranties, the guarantees... When we go to an attorney for counsel or an accountant or a doctor and we ask them to look at our contract or we ask them to examine our body and tell us what's wrong and then we take their prescription or we sign the documents, we are exercising faith that they know what they're talking about and that they're trustworthy and we can take them at their word. If you didn't have faith in your doctor, you might go to him or her and get a diagnosis, and they write you out a prescription, and you go home and you throw the prescription in the wastebasket because you would say something like, I don't think they know what they're talking about, and I don't know what that medicine's going to do to me, and I don't know if it's really going to even solve the problem, so I'm not going to take that medicine. In order to have faith, In their judgment, you have to fill the prescription and take it. And believe that what they've said is going to happen. The point I'm making is, faith requires action. If it's mere intellectual belief, if it's merely a mental kind of thing, it isn't faith. Now, it may rest in your mind until the time for action occurs, but when the time of action occurs... If you have faith, you must take the action. Faith is not passive. Faith is active. James says in his letter to the church, You say you have faith? Great. You say you believe in God? Fine. Even the demons believe, but they tremble in fear. What he's pointing out is intellectual assent is not faith. And it does nothing for you or anyone else. Intellectual agreement is very easy. Because you can say you believe anything. But James says you will demonstrate your faith by your actions. By taking a stand in your behavior on what you believe. So when we come to the question of God and salvation, the first thing that we are asked to do is to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. And everyone who has come to Him as their Lord and Savior has taken this step of faith. Here's here's what it means. There are religious people all over the world. Many of them are religious in Christianity. Others are religious Muslims, or they're Buddhist, or they're Hindus, or they have some other kind of faith. And every one of them who believes in some kind of afterlife and in some kind of God engages in their religion in this manner. If I obey the tenets of my faith, my religion, if I follow the philosophy, if I do my best to treat my fellow man appropriately, to treat myself appropriately, to be as good as I can be, and to follow the guidance of my spiritual leader, whomever that might be, then one day when the judgment comes, I will pass the test and be allowed to enter heaven or whatever form heaven takes in that religion. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes directly counter to that way of thinking and claims this, every one of us has sinned. Our sin has separated us from God. No matter how good we can be, we will never be good enough to merit his acceptance on our own. We will never be able to atone for the sins that we have already committed, or that we're even going to commit. And so when we come to the end of our days, no matter how well we've lived, no matter how nicely we've tried to treat people, no matter how... Uh, faithful and consistent we've been in paying our bills and providing for our family and being a good citizen we have still done wrong things and when we stand before the judgment of God we will be condemned as guilty because we have sinned. But if we will stop trying to gain heaven by our own merit and instead put our faith and trust in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross when He died there for me and shed His blood to cleanse my sin and rose from the grave to give me life eternal, if I put my faith and trust in Him alone for salvation and stop trusting in myself that He will forgive my sin, He will cleanse my life, He will... Come into my life in the presence of His Holy Spirit. He will cause me to be born again and I will have eternal life not on the basis of my good works, but on the basis of His finished work on the cross. That is the faith that God asks us to exercise regarding eternal life. And it requires that we take the action of trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believing that He paid the price on the cross of Calvary, and turning from my own self-effort to gain merit with God. And everyone who is truly born again in this room, every person here this morning who is genuinely a child of God by faith, has come to that confrontation, that crisis moment, where they have recognized they need a Savior, and they have embraced Jesus Christ. But most Christians, most Christians who exercise faith for eternal life have trouble exercising that same kind of faith for daily life. In other words they can believe God in the big picture because they know they've failed in many ways. And in the big picture, they can believe God that in the end, they're going to need some help. And that help is in the form of a Savior. But when it comes to the day-to-day life, they are still convinced in their own mind that they have to keep doing the best they can. Many, many Christians live functionally as if they were still in the old systems of religion, following the philosophies, keeping the rules, trying to follow the tenets of that faith, They've just exchanged their own ideas or their own religion for the Bible. But they continue to live as if every day depended on them. And it was up to them to adopt the teachings of Christianity in order to begin to look like a Christian. How does this faith that I'm talking about then relate to practical holiness? In the same way that God calls us to trust Him for eternal life, He also calls us to trust Him for daily life. That in the big scheme, He will save us forever. And in the small picture, He will save us today from ourselves, from our failures, from our own weaknesses of sin and temptation. Now, I started out by saying that faith is believing the claims or promises of someone else to the extent that we act on them. When you sat in this chair, you believed even though you didn't think about it, the claim of the manufacturer that this chair would hold you up. And you looked at it and you said, Ah, that's a chair. I can sit in that. And you sat down. That was exercising faith. God has also made certain claims, certain statements, certain promises. Besides the the great overarching promise of salvation and eternal life, he has made certain statements regarding our lives on a daily basis that we are asked by God to take on the basis of faith and to act on them. The first one is, if you happen to be following the outline, it's letter B number one. The first one is that the law has failed to produce righteousness. The Old Testament law that God gave to Moses on the mountain in the wilderness with the Israelites during the Exodus, that law did not produce righteousness in the life of any Jew. Never did. Never could. In fact... If you read your Bibles carefully, God did not give them the law to produce righteousness. He gave them the law to show them their sinfulness. The law is a reflection of God's righteousness. And by giving it to the Israelites, He was showing them, this is what I'm like. And guess what? You're not like me. (laughs) You have a problem. But here's the law. Here's my character. Here's my righteousness. But the law has no ability in and of itself to produce righteousness in me. It doesn't matter if it's Old Testament law. Everybody thinks when I speak of law or when someone thinks of law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about any law, any rule, any regulation. Just pick one. I'm going to pick one out of Ephesians 4 in the New Testament. It's a rule that was never given in the Ten Commandments. Here's what it says. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification for the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. So let me ask you, how many of you are familiar with that rule? Have you ever seen it before? Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. How many of you have tried to live by that rule on a daily basis? How does that work for you? (laughs) Not very well, huh? In fact, and here's the point you could take that rule, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Let's see, I, I can never be sarcastic, I can never be caustic, I can never be unkind, I can I can never tell anybody off, I can never get upset and spout off my irritation. I can never tell uh, a joke that has some questionable humor to it. I can never do any of those kinds of things. How many of you have been successful at pulling that off? Probably nobody, huh? Okay. You You can take that New Testament rule, and it's in the form of a command. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Okay, write it down on a piece of paper, put it on an index card, tape it in the bathroom, tape it to your rearview mirror, put it on your desk at the office, put it in your locker where, where you keep your things. So you'll constantly be reminded of that verse from Ephesians 4. Try hard to do it. In fact, you can get up every morning and you can look in the mirror and you can say, Today. I am going to do my best to allow no unwholesome word to proceed out of my mouth. Today, I am going to make sure that I watch every word I say. Today, I am going to keep this verse. How successful do you think you're going to be? You know from experience it doesn't work, don't you? But we keep trying. Why do we keep trying? You know, someone has said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing the same way every time and expecting a different result. did you, you follow that? Okay, you do the same thing the same way every time you expect a different result. Okay, tomorrow's going to be different. No, it's not. And that's only one New Testament rule. We could make enough of them that we could cover the bathroom mirror. You'd have to shave with a handheld. You could plaster your windshield. You could fill up your locker. You could make enough rules and enough... Right out of the Bible. That's all you would see. And friends, I'm here to tell you, if you tried your best to read all those rules, keep all those rules, follow all those principles... All day long, you would be so tied up in knots, you could not even live. You'd be all wrapped up in yourself. You'd always be, oh, did I say the right thing? Did I hear the right thing? Did I watch something I should have seen? Did I hear something I should have listened to? How did I act? How did I do? Did You'd be just all day long living in anxiety over that. And and by the time you were all said and done, you would be all wrapped up in yourself, frustrated, frustrated, failing day after day. You know, those of us that try to live, those of you that try to live that way, I want to exempt myself from that one. Those of you that try to live that way, you have frustrated yourselves already and you haven't even put down one hundredth of the rules you could legitimately write. There is no law that can produce righteousness in you. But let me tell you how it will work. If instead of getting up in the morning and looking at that verse that you wrote and stuck on the mirror and saying to yourself I have got to keep this today I've got to obey that. There's another statement in Scripture that we should take to heart that says set your mind on things above where Christ is not on things that are on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So You get up in the morning and you read the Scriptures. And and you read it not because, okay, I'm going to read this book to obey it. That's what some people do. I'm going to read this book to obey it. You're in trouble. You can't obey it. But if you read this book because it is an expression of the character of God, it tells you what He's like. And you read Ephesians 4 this morning, and it says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. And you think, you know, God's like that. God never gossips about me. When when Ron goes to have his quiet time, God doesn't say, hey, Ron, did you know what Paul did the other day? Well, wouldn't that be a disaster? Because God knows. <laughs> I mean, you know, there would be no lie in there. It's like, whoa, man, I'm having my quiet time. He's telling me everything you guys are doing. That wouldn't be very nice, would it? But God's not like that. He doesn't gossip. God doesn't harshly criticize us. God doesn't uh, treat us with sarcasm and cynicism. You never hear God say, you know what? I don't expect anything out of you today. You mess up every single day of your life anyway, and I just don't expect anything of you today, so just don't even bother me with it. You've never heard that from God. So you read that and you say, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. That's what God's like. God God always gives the right word. He gives the encouragement. God is out for my success. God wants me to do well today. He's always lifting me up. Spirit of God living in me, will you today produce in me that kind of speech? It's natural to you. Would you produce that in me? I give you my mouth today. I dedicate it to you. And Throughout this day, I give you permission. If I'm about to say something I shouldn't say, would you please remind me? And if there's something I ought to say that I'm not saying, would you prompt me And I give you permission to do that, God? And then you can close the book and by faith, get yourself dressed and go face the day. And by faith, you don't have to think about it again. Because the Holy Spirit of God will prompt you when you ought to speak and warn you when you shouldn't and provide the power to do either. So you don't have to tape that verse on your car window or mirror and be all hung up on the rule. You're free to live your day in the presence of Jesus. And just trust Him because He can do that. The reason the law cannot produce righteousness is that we are of flesh sold into bondage to sin. We're broken. Friends, I don't know if you realize this, but we we are not sinners because we have sinned. We have all committed sins because we're sinners. It's on the hard drive. We were born with the defect. Adam and Eve started us out on this path, and we've been on it ever since. We have a sin defect. Left to ourselves, we always go down. Even if you've managed to shore up some areas, no one can shore them all up. We have an internal defect that pulls us down with regard to God's character. We need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. These are truths that God tells us. Believe them. The law can't produce righteousness. You are defective. In you dwells nothing good in and of itself. You must be born again. You must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you're going to ever hope to look like the Lord Jesus Christ, like a godly person, you're going to have to have the Holy Spirit living in you. You need to be born again. All that is required to please God is to have His character reproduced in us that we might yield to the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit. Today, Lord, I trust You to be my righteousness. Not just eternally, but today, I trust You. You tell me when I'm going to do something wrong and stop me. You tell me when I ought to do something positive and tell me... and Prompt me. I'm leaving it up to you, Lord. I'm trusting you. Because I can't do it. You know that. But you can. That is that confident life of faith. I want to just point out something in your study guide right now in case you haven't already discovered it. You see this outline on the front that you may be following as I speak? There's one on the back that corresponds to the same points except on the back, it has only Scripture passages. Every point on the front page is supported by Scripture passages on the back page. I did that because I knew if I tried to have you turn to all of those, we'd be here till about 5 o'clock. And then, thanks to Charlotte, she graciously reproduced all of these on two pages. Just in case you want to take this to work with you and you don't, Have your Bible with you. I encourage you to look them up in the Scriptures, whatever version you read. But here's all of those verses on these two white pages in the middle. So you can go home today and check out everything I'm telling you. I've given you the references, the Scripture passages, to check it out. In Jesus Christ, the law has been set aside, and Jesus Christ has come to fulfill the law in us, By the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We must believe that God will build His character into our lives apart from the law or our efforts to keep it. are, Are you with me so far? This is just real important stuff. If you really want to go out there and live like a child of God. If you're frustrated, if you're here this morning and you're frustrated with some bad habit in your life, if you're frustrated by something you do over and over again, if you've gotten gut level honest with yourself and you've looked in the mirror and you say, you know what, I've just got a problem and I I keep doing this thing over and over. I'm thoughtless or I'm ill-tempered or I'm sarcastic and I hurt people or I'm short tempered or you know I can't keep my eyes where they belong I I, want to listen to stuff I don't need to hear I've got a problem here's the answer here's the answer you can trust God to do for you what you have never been able to do for yourself he will empower and enable you by faith faith if you believe him to walk and become victorious over those things so what is it that characterizes the weak in faith what do they have trouble believing first of all they have trouble believing and accepting the absolute forgiveness of god for all their sins past present and future i want to say to you this morning if you're here as a christian And you live in fear of God every day. You do not know Him. I didn't say you weren't saved. I just said you don't know Him really well. I'm not talking about reverencing God. There is a wholesome kind of respect that the Bible sometimes uses the word fear to describe. And and it means respect or reverence. But I'm saying if you have anxiety if you're afraid that God's going to give you the smackdown, if you're afraid that He's going to slap you around and punish you because you messed up, you do not know God very well. I want to read you from 1 John chapter 4. Just a few verses. begins in verse 16. And listen listen to this. You don't have to turn there. I think it's even printed for you. But listen very carefully. 1 John 4, 16. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. We're talking about God's love. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, and here's the key, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world, there is no fear in love. Because perfect love casts out fear. Fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Friends, the weak in faith have trouble believing that God loves them and has truly punished Jesus on the cross. He took our punishment. And He has borne all of my sin. And I will never again, as long as I live now and eternally, I will never have to pay for a single sin I ever commit or ever have committed. You say, oh, that's scary. If you get that, you know, because you and here's the fear part. The next thing someone comes back with, is, if you think that, what's going to stop you from doing anything you Please. Love, love, if you see how much God loves you, the only rational response is to love him back, to to just respond to him and say, oh God, I want to be next to you and live for you all the days of my life because I'm overwhelmed with your love. But the weak in faith have trouble believing that God really loves them that much and that they they have no more punishment for sin. It's all been taken care of at Calvary. The second thing they have trouble believing is their own helplessness. They have trouble believing that they can't keep at least some of the rules. They have not come to the end of themselves. You remember back in Romans 7 when we were there, the Apostle Paul said, the things I want to do, (laughs) I mess up in. The things I hate to do, (laughs) I find myself doing. Wretched man that I am, who will ever get me free from this body of death that hangs around my neck? For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells nothing good. As long as you think, I'm better than that. I'm better. I'm moral. I can be good. I don't steal. I don't lie. I don't cheat anybody at my work. I arrive on time. I do my job. I pay my bills. I'm a good family person. I'm doing all right. Yeah, I lose my temper once in a while. But everybody does that. Yeah, I probably drink too much sometimes, but who doesn't? Yeah, I probably watch the women a little more than I should, but all guys are like that. You know, as long as you're in that mode, you're never gonna believe that you're truly helpless. But if you'll get an honest look at yourself and God will bring you to the end of yourself, you can't keep the law, ever. You can't. And if you think you've got some area licked, you need to think again, because the scripture says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. The moment pride creeps in, you're going to be on your nose. The weak in faith have trouble believing there's nothing they can do to contribute to their righteousness. And so they keep trying. The weak in faith have trouble believing that the Holy Spirit is capable of leading not only themselves, but the whole church. The fear is, if we take away the rules, everybody's just going to go wild. They're going to go crazy. And denominations through the years... You know, I, I think I've told you before, but when I was in school in North Georgia, up in that part of the country, Northeast Georgia, um, Carolinas, uh, South Tennessee, whatever. Of course, they handle snakes up there, too, so that's a little weird. But anyway, there was a denomination up there that split three times over whether men should wear neckties to church. Split three times over whether you should wear necktie. They were basically factory workers and coal mine workers in that particular denominational setting, and their attitude was, you come to church with a necktie, you're just trying to be like the boss man. You're trying to be like the big guy that owns the company. You're trying to show off. That's pride. That's spiritual pride. You can't be holy and have spiritual pride. And the other side of the coin said, well, we wear a necktie to church because we want to reverence the holy day of God, and we want to be appropriate in the sanctuary, and we want to come to worship in our finest attire. This group split over that. Well, that's absurd. But the belief is, and denominations through the years have come up with all kinds of rules. Women have to wear their sleeves down to their wrist, and at least mid-calf, preferably to the ankle. And on and on it goes. Men can't have long hair. Of course, nowadays, that's passé. Buzz cuts are in, but, you know, back in the day, guys were wearing their hair shoulder length. Oh, that's ungodly. That's an abomination. You can't do that. People are afraid if we take all the rules away, the church is just going to go to hell. I want to give you a little bit of insight here, okay? Okay? If we were to take all the rules away and the church went to hell, I mean, in its action and behavior, it just started acting like the devil. Did you know that would be one of the best things that could happen? Do you know why? Because it would point out that most of the church are not truly born again. If the Holy Spirit of God is living in your heart, and living in all of our hearts. That's not going to happen. He's going to make sure it doesn't happen. And if you take away the standards and people begin to live like the devil, it just proves what they were. Because if it's the rules that are keeping you in line, you need to check out whether you know Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 13, verse 5, he says this. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Prove yourselves whether you be in the faith. See if you have long hair and short skirts and drink or whatever. Check that out. Make sure because if you, if you do, no, he didn't say that. He says examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Do you not know that the Holy Spirit lives in you unless you be reprobate? So find out, is He inside? And He looks like God inside. Impressing me, guiding me, motivating me, convicting me, checking me, leading me, directing me. Is He there or is He not? The weak in faith have trouble believing that God will truly accept them, love them, cherish them, and guide them if they do not try very sincerely to keep all the requirements. Their motto is, yes, God will help me, but I must do my best to be as good as I can be to merit His favor. They're afraid if they don't work hard with God, they'll fail to be sanctified. I want to close just by asking you the question, why do you suppose God gave all the laws he did? He gave all these rules. Go back to the law of Moses, you read the Old Testament, everybody thinks again of the Ten Commandments, but there was more than the Ten Commandments. There were rules about how to eat. There were rules about how to prepare your game. There were rules about how to harvest your food. There were rules about how to cook it. There were rules about what to wear and what not to wear. There were rules about how to maintain your hygiene. There were rules for men. There were rules for women. There were rules for dead bodies. There were rules for sick bodies. There were rules for um, how to worship. If you brought a sin offering, you had to do this. If you brought a guilt offering, you had to do this. If you brought a thank offering, you had to do this. Their whole life was governed by rules from daybreak till sunset. In fact, Moses said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, These laws of mine you shall teach to your children, to your sons and daughters. You shall speak of them when you get up, when you lie down, when you walk in the path. All day long you will be talking about my law, my character, my rules, my regulations. They'll be on your mouth continually. In fact, you should tie them up on little pieces of paper and hang them around your hats so that you'll never lose sight of my law all day long every day. Here's all the rules for your life. Because I'm a holy God. I'm not like the other gods of the, of the other peoples of the world. I'm a holy God, maker of heaven and earth, and here's how you need to live. Why do you suppose God did that? He wanted them to think of him all day long. And a good Jew could not live his life without thinking about God about every five minutes. But Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law. And what does he do? He says, forget about all the ceremonial and laws of worship because your body is my temple. I'm going to live in you. So You don't have to worry about all of that. I'm here. You don't have to worry about what to eat and all that kind of stuff because I'll guide you. I'm your healer. I'm your guide. I'll lead you. You don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments because I'm going to write them on my heart when my Holy Spirit, on your heart, when my Holy Spirit comes to live in you, I'm going to write those inside. There's only one thing you have to do with your life now. Love me with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Fall in love with me. I love you. Fall in love with me. And I will do everything in and through you. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all the law. God gave them the externals to prepare the way for Jesus who would do in us all of those things by faith. We're not called to rules and regulations we're called to have a relationship. Can you trust God to keep you in the path if you just love Him and trust Him fully to do all for you? The weak in faith have trouble there. The strong in faith know that it's true. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank you for your encouragement to us. Thank you for making it so easy. I can breathe a sigh of relief. All you want is my heart. All you want is my heart. I love you, Lord. You have my heart. Amen. Amen.